옹막이 육인 읍장 삼배마개사 동보나 얌센 조끼 모둠예 배마준의 시수다 고두간도 만불코 개기 제수 다두기 징계납치 색수수 구루 배마시리웅 웅어겐 육기눕참상 배마개사 돈보라 얌센 조깅 무둡니에 배마준의 시수다 고두간도 만불고와 개기제수다 뚝기 징계납치 색수수 구루 배마시리 홍홍어게 육개 눕잠사 배마개사 돈보라 얌센 조기영 어둡니에 배마준의 시수다 고두간도 만불코 개기제수 나뚝기 징계납치 색수수 
Of course, once we've taken the four empowerments, and then imagine that the body, speech, and mind of the Guru, Padmasambhava, dissolved indivisibly with our own body, speech, and mind. Ideally, we, continue, we would continue the meditation then from the perspective of the Guru's mind, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. We seek to approximate that as well as we can. As we settle body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Then for a little while, let's go into retreat, withdrawing our awareness from the surrounding world with all of its turbulence, its suffering, its mental afflictions, its chaos and noise. Withdraw your awareness from your own body. Draw your awareness from your own mind with all of its own turbulence and afflictions and imbalances. And let your awareness rest in its own place, still and clear, and knowing itself. And rest there for a little while.
Now we turn to the conclusion of Padmasambhava's instructions on engaging in the search for the mind. He writes, due to differences in intellect, some may report that they find nothing within the parameters of existence and non-existence. Let them examine carefully the mind that thinks nothing is found.
Is there something that is still? Is there a clarity? Is there a still emptiness? Examine. If they report that there is a stillness, that is quiescence or shamatha. So that is not the mind. Seek out awareness and come up with its nature.
if they say it is an emptiness. That is one aspect. So let them seek out awareness. If they say there is a consciousness that is sort of still and sort of clear, but inexpressible, they have identified it a little bit. So they should come to certainty and identify it. Let this phase of spiritual practice last for one day or as long as necessary. Let's continue practicing in silence.
Oh, Lasso. I got a very nice message from a student, my, a student of mine this morning who has been in retreat for a couple of years now. Very dedicated. And she's really flourishing. Really flourishing. Taking delight in the Dharma, really going deep in her practice, doing quite exceptionally well in her shamatha practice. The last time I wrote her, I sent her the, uh, the chapter on Vipassana, especially Vipassana and the nature of the mind from Kamachamera Moche in a spacious path to freedom and encouraged her to complement her shamatha practice with this. So she has been, she's also been practicing the four applications of mindfulness. But she wrote to me this morning, that is, I received this morning an email from her. And uh, she's saying how, how difficult it was for her to arouse her mind and come into this mode of investigation. She found it so peaceful, just resting in awareness, resting in awareness, and having to arouse and engage in inquiry. She said, boy, it's tough, tough to get that motivation going. As far as I know, perhaps as far as historians know, before the Buddha Shakyamuni came along, there, of course, was a very, very rich, perhaps, I think probably, incomparably rich contemplative tradition in India compared to any other civilization on the planet at that time. And as far as I can tell, when they spoke of meditation, the emphasis was on samadhi, and the samadhi was going as far as you could, withdrawing as far as you possibly can, from where you are right now. So achieve shamatha, you're withdrawn from the desire realm. Achieve the first, second, third, fourth jhana, you're really gone. Go into the formless realms. Now you've withdrawn even from the form realm, into the formless realm. And go all the way up to neither perception nor non-perception. You go to the pinnacle of samsara. And Dijum Lingba and all of the great masters since the Buddha have stated if all you've done is achieve shamato or any of that further extension along that path, a greater subtlety, greater quiet, greater equanimity, greater abstraction, you have not taken one step towards enlightenment. You've not one, moved, as Dujum Lingba says, one hair's breadth on the path to enlightenment. And Gautama saw that. He saw it so early, age of 29, achieved all the jhanas, all the samapatis, came out of meditation, and he saw the problem. But boy, if, if he wanted peace, he'd already found it. He could have just come, come home, like, what, two, th- week, two, three weeks later, and say, hi, dear, I'm home. I found what I wanted, you know? I got, I got shamatha, I got the jhanas, I got... I mean, I'm so happy, I met these two samadhi guys, you wouldn't believe it, they wanted me to teach with them. But, you know, I didn't really want to come home and be with my wife and kid. He could have, and then he would have been one more samadhi master. But when he came out of samadhi, he saw that nothing had been touched. That his mental afflictions had simply gone underground. They simply were deeply in hibernation, and it felt awfully good while they were hibernating. But then they were, there they were, ready to spring right back to life, totally full of vigor, in no way hampered. And so for this very dear student of mine, I encouraged her, you know, Good to bring in a bit of Vipassana now, because if you find your present level of shamatha really seductive, like you don't want to move, imagine what it's going to be like when you achieve shamatha. Oh, boy, will you not want to move. Dijom Limpa says, you, you won't dare to move. Bliss like the warmth of a fire. You know, luminosity like the breaking of the dawn. Non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves, and you will dare not move unless you have renunciation. 
if you have renunciation, then you say, well, this was really nice, but I'm still right there in the middle of the ocean of samsara, treading water. So therefore, Vipassana. I've received many wonderful teachings by many wonderful teachers on Vipassana, starting with Galupa teachers. Geshe Rapten, Geshe Nguantaike, His Holiness, quite a number of others. Geshe Ugen Seten, many others, incredible teachers. One of those teachers from whom I never received any teaching, Geshe Zobala. Geshe Zobala. Seemed outside, just this really sweet lama, very good scholar. So sweet, right? Two of you knew him very, so well. I didn't know him so well. But so kind, so gentle, such a pure monk. It's true, isn't it? Such a pure monk, impeccably pure monk. A really good scholar. Never spent any time in retreat, so I was told. And I got an email at yesterday that now days have gone by where he's abiding in Tuktam. He passed away several days ago. And there he is, a sacred presence all, all around him. No decomposition of the body. His meditation continues while his heart has stopped. His breath has stopped. Genlam Rimba, another one from whom I received teaching, the Vipassana, five days, same thing. And what these great masters who have such insight, and they display it finally, they may be so quiet, such hidden yogis that you'd never know for the course of their lifetime. But then when they die, then they show their hand. The poker game's over. They show, oh, you thought I had only two, two deuces or something. You thought I had nothing. You thought I was just a scholar. And then they show, well, you might want to reassess. I'm sorry, we can't talk about it. But they taught you what you needed to know in order to realize what they've realized. They held nothing back. Right? Nothing back. They're so totally non-stingy. I found this to be true of all my lamas. So totally holding nothing in reserve, holding nothing back as if this is too good for you. Never done that, even for me. And I'm not a very good student. I think you have some of you figured that out by now. But what I've been told, especially in these early teachings, the first 20 years, by these teachers, it was a homogenous teaching, is that it's not so easy to practice the passion. It's not so easy to see exactly what isn't existent, that what the Gulupas call the object of refutation. If you just come, if you go on meditation and you come out and think, I don't exist, that's foolishness. Who just concludes you don't exist? I mean, really. It's about in the same category as saying qualia don't exist. Who came up with that idea and how did you know it? So it's foolishness. You know. But then if you come back, okay, I do exist. Yeah, is it now business as usual? And the point there is, it's difficult to arouse exactly that sense, that experience of being really someone in here, existing by our own and defining characteristics from our own side, by our own inherent nature, already there before and independent of any conceptual designation of ourselves. So that's the really subtle part, is to arouse that sense of I am, and then identify what are you grasping to, and then to investigate, does that exist? Right? Oh, yeah. So they say, well, this is not so easy. But 
one way become easy, whether one way this happens kind of obviously, is if somebody accuses you of something unjustly. Like I'll take the least target, gotcha here. Gotcha, my wallet's missing. I saw you in my room the other day. Gotcha. Now you know I can't possibly be serious, but imagine this were the case, and she's a nun, and she's thinking, imagine this were serious. Of course it's not. But imagine I'm pointing here. Nuns are not supposed to steal. Didn't you know about that? Precept. You've, you've, you've terminated your nunhood. Now you're totally a nun-nun. <laughs> no nun at all. Because you stole my wallet. If she had some ego, then she said, I did not. And that eye would, boy, you could pinch that with your, you could put it with your finger in it, right? If that were true. That sense of, I, I didn't do that. Well, I'm so upset with what you said yesterday. That really rubbed me the wrong way. I, I. Good, if that happened yesterday, I hope you got the message. If, if anyone comes here, or if anybody is listening to the podcast because you simply want peace, here's my recommendation. It's very short instruction. It will work. Take a Valium and hop in the jacuzzi. All you want is peace. You don't need me. That's what massages are for. Buddha found peace. That's the first thing he found. The first thing he found. And peace that we cannot even imagine. Of the form realm, the formless realms. He found it. He nailed it. He could have become a rather famous teacher of samadhi. He was invited to. So one way or another we need to arouse arouse a sense of my mind, that grasping onto an inherently existent mind and see, does it exist or not? Arousing the sense of I am and see whether this I that is grasped, does it exist or not? And then we see in this extraordinary way at the end of this section, he's going right into awareness now. He asks about mind, mind, but then he's now he's, he's slipping over to awareness. If you see an emptiness, you have one aspect. But look for the awareness. It looks like just as, I find this just so, I don't know, genius, that in his shamad without a sign, there he is slipping over, making these forays over into Vipassana territory, right? And then slipping back. And then forays into Vipassana territory. And then he goes into Vipassana, he makes foray back to shamatha, and then back to, and then he goes into searching for the mind. And now what is he doing? He's making forays into identifying awareness. Not just the phenomenal, we've already done that forays into realizing pristine awareness. Right there in the Vipassana section. He's encroaching. So he's encroaching forward, encroaching backward, encroaching forward, and so forth. It's quite, isn't it? Quite extraordinary. So the Vipassana practice and the teachings that go along with it are intended to be upsetting, not calming. If you want calming, go for shamatha. But if you want to be liberated, you must arouse the mental afflictions. I've taught the cultivating emotional balance teacher training now five times. Five times. There's a clear sequence. I teach it every time. First week, shamatha, 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 genuine happiness, that kind of thing. People kind of like that. And then we have a week of the four applications of mindfulness. People get really pissed off. And then we have a week of the four measurables. Then they get happy again. But during that interim phase, boy, so much flack. 
people getting upset and angry and uptight and disgruntled. Don't like it. Why do it? And why am I harassing you by continuing to bring these Dzogchen teachings in the 21st century? Why not just leave them where they were in the 16th century, the 14th century, the 8th century? It was so much comfortable back then. The good old days, you know, Tibet, where people flew through the sky. And one out of three men were monks. And monks were so good. And the nuns were so good. And they all lived happily ever after. You know, Why don't we go back to Tibet 100 years ago, 500 years ago. Why don't we go back to India during the time of Atisha? So many people flying around, walking through walls. So peaceful, so nice. Why do I have to bring it here, this degenerate era? Why do I have to remind you of the degenerate views that are in the air? And we probably breathed some of the viruses ourselves. They're probably in our bloodstream. Why am I harassing you like that? Why don't I be nice? Is it so hard to be nice? Albert Einstein, I think you can see, is a man that I have a very deep respect for. Of course, as a physicist. But having really saturated my mind in this brilliant life story, I found I really liked him, really liked him, admired him in so many ways. He was not a flawless character. He had some serious limitations here and there. In other words, he was a human being. But a lot of admiration. I'd love to have him as next-door neighbor. If I could sit down with him, I'd love to have a conversation. I know I'd really like him. So humble. Again, having that type of celebrity status, and it never went to his head. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. That's really quite striking. Really speaks to his character. And he championed things that I championed, that I cherished. The freedom of speech, freedom of creativity, freedom of thought, human rights, respect for the individual. Boy, do I cherish those. He really did. He was a champion. Really a champion of that. He was raised as a secular Jew, didn't really feel very, very Jewish until he saw the anti-Semitism arising in Germany. And the more there was anti-Semitism, the more he really identified with his cultural heritage. Not the religious part so much. But he started really championing the uh, creation of the state of Israel. He was actually invited to be president of the state of Israel. Of the, you know, he happily declined. You know. He was very old at the time, and he knew he was totally not qualified for that job. But I also felt quite sad in one way. And I hope not. I don't think in a judgmental way. But he was this brilliant physicist. But he, part of his mind was very much lodged in 19th century physics and that is strict, strict, strict determinism. That the universe, even with special and general relativity theory, is this great machine inexorably grinding away, grinding away, grinding away. He really did believe that, um, you know, that everything that's happened is determined by prior causing conditions. And then he included human existence. He said all of our activities are predetermined by the molecules, the cells, the elementary particles, the forces and fields and so forth acting upon our body. Everything we do is predetermined. We have no free will. He said that. He said that. We have no free will. We're just moved by the forces of physics, the laws of nature. And yet, in many ways, not always, but in many ways, he was such a profoundly ethical man with a strong sense of social, social responsibility, of a sense of morality. And so he was questioned about this. 
said, you are, you know, you've championed so many noble causes in the, in, the, in the spirit of morality, of ethics, and yet you say we have no free will. So how do you put those together? If we have no free will, then we have no moral responsibility at all. It, it just immediately follows. That's not an interpretation. It just absolutely follows. So how, with all of your activism, he is very, very active, on the global scene for human rights and so on, how do you how do you integrate that with your physics? And his answer was, I think the saddest thing I saw him say, that I saw recorded. He said, we should act as if we were morally responsible, as if we had free will, as if we were not predetermined, as if. The whole survival and flourishing of the human species, see if this is an... You know, I may be a bit melodramatic on occasion. I think I'm probably vulnerable to that. But see if this is melodramatic. It's an overstatement. The entire survival and flourishing of the human species and in our relationship with the rest of the ecosphere and all of the sentient beings on the planet, all of that hinges on whether we as individuals, as communities, as, as nations, as a global community, can act ethically. Is that an overstatement? It all hinges on that. If we can't, we're completely doomed. And we'll doom the planet with us. But if we can, we can flourish, we can live in a peaceful coexistence with other species, with ourselves, if we're ethical. Everything hinges on that, isn't it? Not whether we meditate or that, but whether we are ethical. That's the bottom line. It's true for every great spiritual tradition in the world. Ethics is foundational. And Einstein says, well, for your ethical foundation, pretend that something isn't true is true. To my mind... What's the difference between saying that and, well, you should be ethical? Because if you're ethical, Santa Claus will bring you some really nice presents. But if you're not ethical, he's going to fill your stocking with coal. And you'll get no presents. Oh, by the way, there's no Santa Claus. But let's imagine as if there's a Santa Claus, and now let's be ethical. I find that very sad that he was seeking this grand unified theory for the last 25 years of his life to unify. It was a great principle of his, of wanting to unify disparate fields in physics, and he wanted to unify the marvelous field equations of James Clerk Maxwell for electromagnetism and his own brilliant theory of general relativity into one great or grand unified theory, gut, grand unified theory. And he sought it, he never found it. He wanted to unify electromagnetism with gravity, but he never unified his own life. His physics is over here that we're all robots. We're not making any choices at all. It, it feels like we are, but we're not. There he is there, and believing that's the God's own truth. And over here, he's seeking, really, he really, really was seeking. He was a very moral man. He tried to make good moral judgments, didn't always succeed, but he certainly tried. And there is no unification there at all. Pretend as if. I can't help but feeling that that's the case for Michio Kaku. He wants to develop empathy with an air conditioner. Daniel Dennett says that he has no experiences. Nobody else does either. We're robots. I'm sure they don't believe that. They don't live that. They couldn't. William James was indoctrinated into this reductionistic notion of mind being brain already way back in the 1860s when he was getting his medical training at Harvard. He received that 
that the mind is just the brain, the mind is just the brain. They had no empirical evidence. They were just saying it, saying it. And he took it. He was such a sensitive soul. He really was very, very sensitive. He suffered from his sensitivity a lot. He took that in. And I know there are compound influences on this, but that was definitely one of them. He basically went catatonic. You can read about his own experience in varieties of religious experience, where it was this absolutely existential sense of helplessness, utter, utter despair, to the point that he was virtually catatonic, that we have no, free, no, we have no freedom at all, we make no choices at all, we are not even agents. And he took that in, he took that right to his heart, and it was like a dagger in his heart, and he... He almost just collapsed. And then it dawned on him, the evidence is not compelling, that we are compelled by the facts to believe that. And so he said, inspired by a French philosopher by the name of Renouvier, he was inspired then to make the following statement, my first act of free will is to believe that I have it. When I was growing up as a teenager, my father was an ordained minister, but primarily an academic, a theologian, but he was also an ordained minister. He would, on the weekends, on Sundays, almost every Sunday he'd be in the Los Angeles Basin, eight million people there. He would be invited to one church after another after another as the visiting, visiting pastor, when the local pastor was on vacation or their interim pastor or whatever. And so often I would invite me, I'd go with him. I'd hear my dad preach. And we drive, drive off in his red Porsche and uh, travel all over the L.A. basin. It's Sunday, and I'd hear him preach. And he is a very thoughtful man, a very intelligent man, very learned, actually very open-minded, very ethical man, too. Uh, he said he was very concerned about something he saw so frequently in the congregations that he was preaching to. And that is kind of a Sunday mentality that was different from the Monday through Saturday mentality. You get in the Saturday, Monday through Saturday, you get doctors and lawyers and scientists and physicians and all kinds of very well-educated, highly intelligent people with very sharp, discerning intelligence. And then they come to church on Sunday and they sit there like gray school children. You know, and you know, just like this really naive, unquestioning faith. And then when Sunday's over, then they're back to hardball, intelligent, inquiring, sharp, and so forth and so on. And he felt this is, this is not healthy, that you're a really devout, simple-minded Christian on Sunday, but then you're critical. And where's your Christianity now, Monday through Saturday? Or years ago, I was in Dharamsala, and I spoke with one person in the government. And he said, well, I'm a Buddhist, but I don't let that, I don't let that interfere with my work, work day. And so this is why I've been torturing some of you. By drawing Padmasambhava's teaching in the 21st century and seeing where there's compatibility, where there's not. So it's evident, so it's manifest. Because I think the temptation for us now is as much for the Christians as it was for Tibetans 100 years ago and so forth. Or for Hindu yogis who would just slip off into samadhi and leave India behind to create something of a disparity, a disunity, a chasm between our active lives, socially engaged, living in the 21st century in this world, and then we go and imagine ourselves to be Vajrayagini, or Yamantaka, or focusing on Padmasambhava, or going into awareness of awareness, or practicing shamatha. You know. 
that have we actually integrated those? Will we easily be able to slip from this eight-week retreat into another lifestyle? Most of us are not going back into strict retreat. Will that be seamless? Or will we feel that there was a significant discontinuity, that what we practiced, what we reflected upon here, is now fading out really quickly as we return to the real world, where everybody else thinks they're living? So this has been a, a very passionate concern of mine for a long time. As I was raised, very, very personal now, but I was raised in a very Christian family and from the age of 13 wanted to pursue a, sci- a career in science. Absolutely dedicated to it. That was going to be it. That was my whole career. Ecology, environmental activism, wildlife biology, that was it. But then I found as I was going through the teens that these two worldviews, because they're not just some disciplines here and there, they're ways of viewing reality as a whole. What I was getting through my high school years and then through college was a worldview pretty much dominated by materialism, and then the Christian, which is not. And I found that they weren't even on speaking terms. There was no integration. I never once heard a pastor in any church I ever attended talk about science and how you'd integrate Christian worldview with modern science. I ne- I'm sure there are some. I never heard it. But nor when I was receiving all my science education from junior high school right on through first two years of college, I never heard any scientist talk about, well, by the way, if any of you are religious, here's how you might be able to create some relationship. Because many, of course, were. They weren't all secular when they came in. But not one ever addressed that. And so I'm looking around. I was being raised schizoid. Like you've got this worldview with its set of values and so forth over here. And they have another one over here. They're completely incompatible. And by the way, no one's helping you integrate it. And they weren't. I found that completely intolerable. Because I couldn't live in the Christian, there's just in, in the doctrine that I had been exposed to, there's just too much I couldn't accept is true. I couldn't accept it, not possible. But the science gave me no meaning at all. No meaning, lots of facts, no meaning. And I couldn't find anybody in Western civilization to help. So I left, very happily. It turned out well. But I left, and, I, and when during the early years in Dharamsala, I would often say I was born at the age of 20. Because that's when I found Buddhism and started immersing myself into that. In other words, I was quite happy to jettison the first 20 years of my life as rubbish. Just confusion, unhappiness, bewilderment, mundane success. So that didn't count. And so I immersed myself, speaking Tibetan, living with Tibetans, taking monastic ordination, total immersion, 14 years pretty much. And then it kind of dawned, and then the last four was pretty much devoted to meditation. Then it kind of really dawned on me. I was looking for unification, and what I've done is disunify myself further. I've thrown off the first 20 years with Christianity and science as if they're worth nothing. And I'm a Buddhist, but now I'm a Buddhist disengaged from my Christian background and my scientific background. So now where did that exactly get me in terms of unity, harmony, coherence? So then I started studying physics, philosophy of science, history of science, and so on. Continued with Stanford and so forth. And I would say in about 2001, after I had been teaching for four years at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and left, was not given an endowed chair, which turned out fine, oh, went off for six months, deep solitude. And I kind of felt from that time that I'd become unified. Don't think that means anything of enlightenment, it doesn't. But I felt that my mind was now coherent, that all parts of my mind spoke with all the other parts that I, I wasn't a Sunday Buddhist or a Saturday Buddhist or three days, or in my meditation session I was Buddhist off. It was, I have a Krishna background, I have a scientific background, I'm a Buddhist, 
and they're all on speaking terms. And that felt, okay, now we can, now we can move on from that perspective. So that's why I kept on bringing this to the 21st century. That whatever you think of these people I've cited, from Aristotle, who was brilliant after all, why would, otherwise why would anybody talk about him you know, 20, 200 years after he passed away? And on through, and on through all the, all the people I've cited, that if you look at that, that you have your own perspective. I never suggested, oh, you should believe everything I say. That was never the subtext, never my intention. But grapple with it. Bring it to mind. And bring it to mind in an integrated way, a whole way. So insofar as you adopt a Buddhist worldview, you're in complete dialogue with your own background, because we're all coming from a modern background, whether we're coming from east, west, north, or south, that is all integrated, that you're totally whole within yourself. And within that context, you practice vipassana to really try to understand the nature of your mind. So that's the last talk on vipassana. And I don't really right now have anything more to say about modernity and all that kind of stuff. Because we'll move on this afternoon to identifying pristine awareness. And that's not east or west. That's not ancient or modern. It's true or it's not true, but if it's true, it's primordially true in this and any other galaxy. If it's true, it's that true. So that's where we'll go this afternoon. But until then, make hay while the sun shines. The passionate time for the next seven hours or so. <laughs>